0: If you have your Bibles with you, get ready because we're going to explore some scripture together and as I say every time, um, we do put it on the screen but it's great when you have it in your lap as well to be familiar with it. Um, Before we get to that though, uh, I want to, for those who have been here over the past few weeks, we've been celebrating some great Christmas songs and every week we've unpacked the meaning of a part of some of those great Christmas songs because as we've already mentioned, some of our songs are just chock full of great biblical truth. Uh, So we've picked a a few themes out of a couple of songs. I wonder if anyone remembers what the songs are that we've done so far in December. Yes, we did, O Holy Night. um, And that was the line, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. What does that mean, to be able to cast our cares on God and to know that he has them and our weary souls can rejoice? Uh, So that was the first week. Does anyone remember what we did last week? Joy to the world. Well done. Joy to the world. And the line particularly, uh, no more let sin and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings grow. And we thought about how life is so much better when we allow Jesus to be our saviour and our king uh, and to keep in step with his Holy Spirit instead of living life our own way. Life is better. So I'm going to put another well-known carol onto the screen. Uh, I'm going to put verse 2 of a well-known song, um, but I reckon you're going to struggle to pick it. So if you see the words and you recognise them, yell out straight away what you think the title of the song is. God of God, light of light, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Who said that? You're a muso. No musos are allowed to participate in today's quiz. Well done, Steve. Well spotted. So if you look at the, uh, the whole verse, it goes like this, because many of you will know the refrain, Oh, come, let us adore him. We've sung it today, okay, and we really enjoyed singing it. But if you have the tune in your head, as you look at that, the phrasing of that first verse, it's a little odd, isn't it? It's like, I don't know how you've gone trying to get students to, to play that or sing that, Steve, but the timing is a little weird there. Um, if you think of verse 1, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, try fit that into the same timing. It's tricky. Does anyone know the reason why? Apart from Steve. <laughs> well, it's because it was written in Latin. It wasn't written in English. So it was written in a different language. Uh, some of you may know it by its uh, other title, "Adeste." Fidèles, um, and it was written about three hundred years ago, uh, from probably by a guy by the name of John Francis Wade. Um, but there are some legends that say it goes back even as far as the thirteenth century it 's a very old song, regardless, um, and despite the fact that this verse is a bit of a pain to sing in English, which is why most times we sing it, we, we skip over this one because everyone gets a little bit lost. Uh, but it has some wonderful truths that we 're going to spend a bit of time today uh, getting our minds around. Uh, This song reminds us of uh, one of the great aspects of the Christmas story, uh, where it talks about the virgin birth, the miraculous conception. Uh, He abhors not the virgin's womb. What does it mean that Jesus was born of a virgin? Is it possible? And if it is, what does it actually mean to us? We're going to read the story of what the Bible says about that. Uh, and it is going to come from Luke's Gospel. So uh, I might, might just get Paul to come and recite it from memory. But uh, no, won't, won't do that to him. Let's read from verse 26 of Luke's first chapter. Uh, and again, uh, you can see that on the screen or in your laps as we read it through. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favoured woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So the story is fairly clear, isn't it? The Bible spells out very, very clearly uh, what is going on here. Jesus had no earthly biological father. Uh, There is no doubt the intent of the passage in communicating that truth to us. He was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that simple idea has created loads of controversy ever since the occurrences in history. Uh, And those controversies have existed both outside the church and inside the church as people have grappled with, well, what does this really mean? And can it be relied on to be true? So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to look at some objections to just taking that passage at face value, some objections to believing in this thing called the virgin birth of Jesus. And as we do that, there are three that we're going to step our way through. First of all, and we'll spend most time on this one, is the idea that the story was made up after the events in order to give some legitimacy to uh, both Jesus and Mary. For Mary, for somebody who was in a very awkward situation and had to make up a story to kind of make it okay. And for Jesus, the idea of let's make him really really special. So the story was made up to either make Mary or help Mary get out of trouble or to make Jesus somebody really special. That's that's one common objection to the story of the virgin birth. A second objection that has been uh, raised right through history is that the story is actually blasphemous. This idea is an offence against God, and we'll unpack some of what that means. And the last one is that the story is unscientific. We know how these things happen and it doesn't happen like that. Uh, so, what do you do to people who believe that this is just not a, uh, something that could happen? Um, and those are some common objections we have, but I hope that as we step through them fairly briefly today, that you'll see, um, as, as I have in, uh, in my studies, that when you grapple with these objections and when you're willing to acknowledge that they are true and we have to take them seriously, uh, that they, they actually drive you deeper into faith and it's a greater gratitude for the amazing miracle of the virgin birth but we do want to know that for sure and we want to be able to share that with others so let's spend some time just stepping through those and we'll look at that first one to start off with and this is the one as i said that we're going to spend the most time on and there's two parts to this objection that the story was made up to legitimize both jesus and mary The first is what Mary might have done with this very awkward reality of she's finding herself pregnant, she's not yet married, that's scandalous. um, What am I going to do about this? The second one is what might have happened later on in history as Jesus' followers are looking to really promote him and grow this religion. How can we make Jesus really, really special? What's really going to get people's attention? So the idea is that a story was made up by both groups, by Mary initially, by his followers later on, and we're going to spend some time kind of debunking that idea. So let's deal with Mary first. Let's give some sympathy for the people who think that this might have happened, that Mary might have made up a story, because if it is true that she found herself pregnant in that society, that was a huge problem for her, as it has been for many mothers throughout history. Tragically, mothers have often not received the support they need in those moments. What they've received is condemnation and judgment. And in that society, the thought is maybe that's what she was um, fearing and maybe that's what she is trying to escape by making up a story to explain how she's gotten pregnant. Mary's well-being in that society really did depend on her being married and having children. And you read that into so many stories in the Bible for the heartache of women who were not able to have that as their story in life, how difficult that was for them. We know from Matthew's Gospel that Joseph was a righteous man who was not inclined to marry somebody who had been promiscuous. And we read in Leviticus chapter 20 that the penalty under the Mosaic law for being unfaithful to the partner that you were betrothed to was death. So from that point of view, Mary was in a very, very difficult situation finding herself pregnant. So what's she going to do? And some might argue that coming up with a story about being impregnated by God might be some way, maybe it's a slim chance, but might be some way of her getting out of this predicament that she finds herself in, maybe redeeming this terrible situation. Now, Nazareth, where Mary lived, was in an area that was surrounded by Greek colonies. Um, Alexander the Great had come in. He'd conquered the region in about 332 BC. So, for several centuries now, there'd been these Greek communities. And there are a number of Greek myths about uh, people being impregnated by gods. Uh, For example, one of the founding stories of Greek culture is the story of Perseus whose father was supposedly Zeus, who changed himself into a golden shower of rain uh, and rained down upon a princess named Danae, making her pregnant. And speaking of Zeus, there was also another story, he got up to a bit old Zeus, um, of where he threw down a lightning bolt Uh, that impregnated the mother of Alexander the Great the night before she was uh, married to King Philip of Macedon. And so Alexander the Great wasn't actually King Philip's son, he was the son of Zeus, and that kind of lent a bit of aura of greatness to his story. So you have, uh, in both cases, these heroic figures who have apparently been fathered by gods. And those stories are very common in the regions surrounding Nazareth. So you've got probably an awareness of those stories. You've got uh, a young lady who's finding herself in a very t- terrible situation, not sure what to do about it. Uh, you've got a whole community who is eagerly awaiting a heroic figure to come and save them. The Jews were waiting their Messiah. And you can see how all of those factors might come together and Mary can kind of go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give this a chance. I'm going to roll the dice, maybe it's going to come off and I won't be in real trouble here because I'm finding myself Now the only problem with that theory is that historically it just doesn't make any sense when you actually get to know what was actually going on in history at that time. Uh, For example, we know that the death penalty that Leviticus 20 uh, prescribes for uh, unfaithfulness, um, that wasn't being enforced in Jewish culture at that time in history. There were some very, very infrequent examples of it happening at various times. Those were usually very politically charged situations uh, involving succession and priestly stuff and all that kind of stuff. None of those factors were present in Mary's case. And even if they were, the Romans had outlawed uh, the death penalty except in a very small category of cases which were basically religious offences, offences against the Jewish temple. In those cases, the Jews had been permitted to put some people to death, which is an interesting little fact to file away. But uh, in terms of capital punishment for adultery, that simply wasn't on the table at the time. Um, But the interesting thing about that is you think about what would have gotten Mary in trouble. Would being pregnant without being married have got her into trouble? Yes, it would have been pretty awkward. It would have um, caused a whole lot of relational tensions. And you can imagine how her parents would have reacted, how Joseph would have reacted, how Joseph's family would have reacted, how the community would have reacted. There would have been undoubted stigma, even if there wasn't the threat of such a a terrible punishment as what Leviticus 20 outlines. Um, But there were worse things. Um, In fact... Um, At that time in history, it wasn't all that unusual for people to find themselves in situations like Mary found herself in. In a similar way, you might look at society today and realise that, yes, there are many, many different ways that families form today. It was a bit like that in that era in history as well. So it's not as though it was completely unusual, unexpected, unheard of. It's not as though people hadn't had to deal with this kind of stuff before. It was happening. It's always happened. We know that. Um, Yes, there are times in history where those things have been swept under the carpet but actually most people realise that stuff happens and that was the case back then as well but what did get people really really fired up if you were in a jewish community particularly surrounded by these other greek colonies is two things number one when you kind of took greek culture and tried to meld it into jewish culture They had this very high value, we are separate, we are holy, we are God's people, we don't have the same customs, we don't even like to hang out with each other, we are a different tribe. And that boundary between Jews and Gentiles was very, very strong, and you see it in the Gospels when you read the stories of Jesus' life. So that separation between Jews and Gentiles, don't mess with that, and the separation between God and people. Unlike those pagans who had all these stories about gods coming and doing all kinds of stuff with human beings and whose stories about gods were based on how people behave anyway, um, the Jews were very, very different. Their idea of God, he was completely holy. He dwells in unapproachable light, which is something our song talked about. And so the idea that a god would come down and be physically connected, intimate with a woman, that's a very scandalous thing to say. Remember Moses when he got to see God? Remember what a big deal that was? He had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock because no one can even look upon the face of God. Um, So the idea that God would be intimate in a person in a way that would impregnate them, that's a scandalous thing for a Jew to think about. So the idea that Mary made up a story to get out of trouble and the story involved some stuff which was remarkably similar to some Greek legends uh, and Roman legends involving Zeus and Jupiter and also involved God becoming very, very intimate with a human being Both of those things were far greater offences to Jewish people than the idea of becoming pregnant out of wedlock. So for her to make up that story to get out of trouble makes no sense historically. If anything, if you were going to say, "Okay, this is Mary making stuff up, she would have gone the other way. She would have found herself pregnant under the power of the Holy Spirit and gone oh dear, I can't tell anyone this, this is going to get me into a lot of trouble, I'd better say I was unfaithful. That's more likely than going the other way, being unfaithful, getting pregnant and making up a story about this divine encounter because that is a hugely offensive thing. So the idea that Mary made up this story to legitimise her experience, it just doesn't wash historically. And we see that from the way the Gospels play out. But what about Jesus' later followers? Because uh, like in many other religions, stories tend to grow over time to make the, the founder of that religion more special, right? Just like I tell stories about my adventures as a younger man to make me more of a hero to my children, it tends to happen uh, in, in religions as well. And so legends grow over time. Uh, for example, Alexander the Great, he's not just a guy who's good at commanding armies, now he's the son of Zeus. His legend's getting bigger and bigger. And that, that's just the way history works. And if you study history, you'll see how that happens Time after time after time after time. Uh, If you've ever been fishing, you've probably done the same thing. The fish that fell off your hook was that big, and as you retell the story, oh it was a monster, you know. So things naturally grow. The more you tell a story, the more that story tends to add extra dimensions for effect. Now, the thought is that this is what happened with the story of the virgin birth. Jesus is a great teacher. And then over time as they tell the stories of him, he's, he, you know, he works some miracles and over time he's even born of a virgin. He's, he's a God in the flesh and his legend grows as the tellings of the stories repeat. Can anyone guess what the problem with that theory is? Yeah, we actually have really, really good documentary records of what the first Christians said about Jesus. Our records go right back to when there were living witnesses of him. And so for example, the the records of the, the resurrection when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, look, there's all of these people, there's James, there's, there's the apostles, there's the 500 who witnessed... Go and talk to the people who actually saw these things and you'll see that what we're saying is true. And when you look at the amazing claims the Bible makes about Jesus, whether it's his virgin birth, whether it's his miracles, whether it's his amazing teaching, whether it's just his character and the way he treated people, whether it's his death and resurrection, all of those details, all of them go back to the very first records. They were all there right in the beginning. And you know what's really interesting? Unlike all those other religions where the stories grew over time, you know what the pressure was for the first Christians? The pressure was to take this amazing truth about Jesus and make it less, not make it more. Why? Because people didn't like it. (laughs) They were getting into a lot of trouble. Remember when the, the Jewish Sanhedrin called up Peter and John, stop talking about this guy. The pressure was to say less about Jesus, not more about Jesus. You didn't want to add details like Mary that would get you into trouble. You wanted to leave out things that were getting you into trouble so that at least you could say something. And that was a lot of the pressure that the early church faced. If you look at some of the councils that were held in the first three centuries of the church, you see, time and time again, there were, there were people who were influential in the church who wanted to take away some of the, the scandal of the virgin birth or the resurrection, but particularly the virgin birth, um, and re-interpret um, kind of what those plain texts actually mean, because the, the pressure that they were under, first by the Jews, who considered it scandalous that God would become involved in a human in this way, Then by the Romans who didn't like this Jewish Messiah claiming some of the stories that they used to prop up their own religions Um, and and there was hostility from all sources about this idea of the virgin birth. Uh, If you want to read more about it, um, it's a long read but brilliant, Uh, check out the writings of Justin Martyr in in about 100 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus and he is writing to the emperor in Rome and going through some of their objections against Christianity and he's saying look logically you don't have a reason to object because some of you your legends are quite similar. But nevertheless, those who were in power hated the idea that there was this Jewish leader that was not only the embodiment of their most fanciful ideas, but even went beyond that. And he was a more gracious, more wonderful, more perfect uh, image of God than what their own man-made stories could come up with. So you look at the idea that this story was made up to give legitimacy to Jesus, and you go, it just doesn't work. It doesn't get Mary out of trouble. It doesn't make Jesus more palatable and more worth following. It just gets people into trouble. So if anything, the story's got smaller, not larger. So historically, we can rule that one out and say, no, there is no chance that the story was made up by followers of Jesus who wanted to advance their cause. The story was maintained by followers of Jesus, even though in many cases it hurt their cause. And that's what the real history tells us. Okay. So this is the one that we are spending the most time on but I want to skip to the next two just so that uh, you can hit some some common objections to Jesus and uh, it's really helpful for us to know what they are and how we can answer those ourselves. Uh, last week we spoke about the curse of sin and sorrow that affects the whole physical creation. All of creation is broken. Now, for Jews, it's really, really important that God remains separate from His creation. He is perfect. He is holy. He's not to be confused with how we think and how we act. He is so good that He just can't be mixed up with us um, and the way that we would taint His character uh, simply by relating to us and including us in His family. God is perfect, creation is not. God is immortal, creation is temporal. God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's present everywhere. Creation is limited in power. It's frustrated. It's limited in knowledge and in presence. God is alone in holiness. There is only one God. And think about the story of the virgin birth. The first thing you're saying is that this one true God exists in several persons. You're now talking about a father, a son, and the Holy Spirit. Luke's account mentions all three of those as being part of the story of the virgin birth. And the Jews rightly hold to the fact that there is one God who is simply identified as I am who I am. A name that is so important, so holy to them, they won't even say it. They'll refer to him in other ways. So uh, the idea that this one God is actually multiple people, for a start, that's difficult for a Jew to accept. That God would identify in three persons rather than just one. To say that he would become part of his creation is to make him less. He is holy, he's above it. How could he be part of it? How could he be part of this fallible, uh, corrupted, created order? And obviously God the Son becomes very vulnerable. Uh, dependent on a human mother for everything. You're going to say that the holy creator God who spoke the universe into being becomes dependent on a young human girl for his very existence? And not only that, even the father becomes vulnerable. Who's had a child either through adoption or biologically? You know what it's like to become vulnerable in that moment. You're not independent. You can't do what you want anymore. You are tied in a way that you weren't tied before. Uh, you've become vulnerable to that child. And that's how it was for God the Father. He became vulnerable in a unique way when Jesus became human, when the Son became one of us. When Jesus took on humanity, that had an impact not only on him, but on his Father as well. It cost him. It tied him to humanity in a way that was not possible for him to remain separate anymore. So for a Jew, that's really hard to accept. God is meant to be remote from us. We're not meant to have any power over God. God can do what he likes. But in the story of the virgin birth, no, God is tied to us and he's dependent on us in a strange way. And it's not just the Jews who struggled with this. There are people we refer to as the Gnostics and they had this idea that everything physical was, was evil and spiritual things are good. And so in order to become more good, you've got to become less connected to this physical world and more kind of spiritual The idea that God would leave the spiritual world and become physical just doesn't make sense. It's offensive to them. So both for Gnostics and for Jews, for anyone, including Christians who emphasize the holiness of God, sometimes we struggle with this idea that God became human. He became one of us. It actually feels a little bit blasphemous. It points us not to a God that we have to leave this broken world to encounter, but it points us to a God who is here with us he's redeeming us he's healing this broken world and will one day finish the job and for those who are willing to receive it this truth of the virgin birth doesn't make God less because what is perfect became part of this imperfect world it actually makes him greater it shows his character more clearly he's even more worthy of our worship but Even though some people find the story blasphemous, that a holy God could become part of this messed up world, that God who is meant to be um, impervious to us became vulnerable to us, it feels like bringing God down and that feels wrong to many, many people, including Christians who tried to argue that it couldn't surely have happened. Um, Even though it feels blasphemous, for those who will receive it, it feels wonderful, doesn't it, that God came here for us. He took on something he never had to take on for us. He endured stuff that, as a God, he should have never endured for us. But is it actually scientifically plausible? I mean, regardless of how you feel about whether it's blasphemous or beautiful... Um, is it really likely to have happened? So we're going to very briefly finish off on this, l- this last objection, that the story, it's connected to, like we thought about earlier, that, yeah, all these cultures have funny stories about gods and ways that people become pregnant and all that kind of stuff. That's a pre-scientific mythology. Uh, we know better now. We're modernists. We're, we're sophisticated. We know about what happens with DNA and with cells and all that human bile stuff that I never studied. Um, So it's it's just not scientific. How can we be expected to believe in a miraculous conception? Well, modern science doesn't answer every question, but we know a fair bit about birth and what it takes, and it's nothing like what Luke chapter 1 describes. It just can't happen. And as much as it might be hard to believe that Mary would make up a story or the early Christians would make up a story, surely it's even harder to believe it actually happening the way the Bible describes But I like the way that John's Gospel makes a real point out of this. If you only had Luke or Matthew's description of the story, you could be forgiven for thinking that Jesus wasn't pre-existent, that he was created in that moment, in a very unique way, but created nonetheless. But John tells us that the the story of the virgin birth is even more amazing than the idea of God creating something in a way that no other human has ever been created. It's even better than that. Because as... There we go. Because as it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Our, very, uh, our song earlier reminded us, uh, verse 2 of O Come All You Faithful. Lo, He abhors not the virgin mood. Um, and it's not just the fact that God created something in a virgin. It's that God himself came and inhabited that space. That's mind-blowing. That is scientifically like... Pfft. So you're telling me that a, a being infinitely powerful who can speak a universe into being, uh, who can sustain a universe, as the book of Hebrews tells us by his mighty word, a being so complex comes and inhabits a couple of human cells and, and is programmed into that DNA somehow? I mean, that that's just a fanciful concept to think about and yet John's gospel very clearly says it. In fact if you go on further to verse 14 it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory the glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. John as somebody who traveled around with Jesus says hey as we traveled with this guy we knew he was just no ordinary human. We knew there was something glorious about him that could only be explained by this brain-shattering concept that God, infinite God, came down into the finite, the very finite space of a virgin's womb. And from there became the person that we got to know as Jesus Christ. It's an amazing truth. But how does that work? How does this idea of a pre-existing son of God uh, who is so awesome that he creates everything comes and inhabits this space. How does that ridiculous idea make any sense? But John, in his wisdom as the Holy Spirit inspires him, reminds us of another ridiculous idea that in the first place he created everything just through his powerful word. I mean, surely that's not scientific either. If you struggle with an idea of a virgin birth, you probably also struggle with the idea of a God who spoke the whole universe into being. They're probably fairly similar objections that you would raise. But yet regardless of how it is that you think this world came into its present shape, how long you think it took, what the processes might have been or so on, regardless of any of that stuff that you might uh, wonder about and explore scientifically, at some point you get to this this beginning where you say, and we don't know how that happened. Regardless of what you think about what you know that anything else happened, you're always going to get to a point where you say, I don't know about that. So for some people, that's, I don't know where that infinitesimally small point of energy came from. How could that have gotten there? I don't know. At some point, science reaches its limits. And you've got to be prepared to say, well, there are some things we don't know. And I love the way that one uh, Christian pastor put it. He said, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. It kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? At some point, doesn't matter whether you're looking at the Bible or whether you're reading a book about physics, you're going to get to a point where you have to believe something happens. You're going to, you're going to get there. You're going to get to the limits of your knowledge. Uh, so you get to choose what miraculous thing you think happened. And as Christians, we don't just kind of randomly choose and say, oh, well, I'll go that one, that seems pretty good to me. No, no, you you look at all of this evidence that backs up the biblical story and you say, I think we've got some really good reasons to say that's the miracles we're going to believe in. Um, And I want to feel affirmed in that because science can't actually contradict that at any point because at some point you're going to have to choose a miracle. We've got good reasons to choose the one we choose the creator of the universe and the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ and all of those wonderful things that we believe history attests. Science can often describe what? Sometimes it can even discover how. Sometimes they're just theories about how. Sometimes they can discover that stuff. But science can never determine why. And I want to encourage you with this. When it comes to the the story of the virgin birth, it's not enough for us just to argue whether it happened. Um, we don't even need to know how it happened but we do know very clearly why it happened and because we know why like those very first christians who had to stand firm when the pressure was on them to take it out of the story we're going to stand firm and say no no this matters we're going to hold on to it because it's the whole story of the uniqueness of jesus and what he was able to do god knows what how and why isn't it great that we can turn to him for god so loved the world in this way he gave His one and only Son, so whoever, anyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you ever need to know a why statement, there we go. Why the virgin birth? Why creation? Why the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Why all His miracles? Why His teaching? What's well, this? Because God loved the world so much that He gave His own one and only Son, so everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The story of the virgin birth is not about legitimising Jesus uh, in the eyes of the Jewish community or in the eyes of the world. It's not about legitimising Mary as his mother. It's not blasphemous, it's actually really quite beautiful. And it's not unscientific, it just operates in places that science can't go. And I hope that as you think about those three objections that you're reminded of how wonderful the story is. It's a beautiful portrayal of God's grace that moves us to worship. The infinite creator of our universe became almost infinitely small and vulnerable and dependent and mixed up in the mess of this life and he did that because he loves you and he loves me. That's the whole story of the Bible and I hope that you're affirmed in that today and that you have joy in sharing that story with others. Our song, oh, hang on. Phew, that was dangerous. I thought I had the song lyrics of uh, O Come All You Faithful up there. Uh, our song, O Come All You Faithful, reminded us, and I'll just read those words out for you. God of God, God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for showing your character of love in sending your son into our broken world to save us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming upon Mary in power to enable her to conceive when it shouldn't have been possible. And Jesus, we thank you for being willing to have your very nature forever changed to become both fully God and fully human. Thank you for taking on the frailty of a human body to save those who are too frail to save themselves. God, we thank you for so shaping both Mary and Joseph that they were willing to trust you with the scandal of becoming Jesus' parents. Thank you for helping those early Christians not to compromise the truth. It would have been so much easier for them to leave out certain parts of the story. Help us to stand firm in the whole truth of the story of Jesus, no matter what objections people might raise. Help us to see that every objection to the truth actually gives us more reason for faith and for worship. And may that be our response. Amen.